I would love the courts to play a greater role in this. Um, I, I would love the courts as a first step to realize that they have a role in this. Nine times out of ten, when you hear a judge uh, or someone in a court position talk about access to justice, the first thing and the last thing out of their mouth is lawyers cost too much. If you lawyers would just lower your fees, we wouldn't have these problems. And it is true that the cost of engaging a lawyer is quite high and out of the reach of most people. But to pretend that if every lawyer was suddenly free, that the court system would flow like a like like, like a reservoir after the the dam is lifted, is it? It's not true. Courts are expert systems designed to be used by experts, not by anybody else, that were designed to handle a certain volume of uh, procedures that followed a very set kind of way. They, they are, to, to use a favorite Richard Susskind term, they're bespoke. Welcome to Of Counsel. I'm your host, Sean Robichaud. Join us as our podcast profiles remarkable legal advocates from all areas of law, the professionals of persuasion, the catalysts of social change, defenders of the downtrodden, protectors of social order, and the mercenaries of corporate interests. Those who, with the power of words alone, can shape the laws of nations, define human rights, and preserve or take away the liberty of another human being. Who are these lawyers? What are their secrets? And how do they balance it all? Court is now in session. All rise. On this episode of Council, Jordan Furlong joins us to discuss the future of law. Jordan is a forecaster of the legal market's future. Law firms and legal organizations retain him to advise their lawyers how to build sustainable and competitive legal enterprises that can dominate the new market for legal services. After graduating from Queen's Faculty of Law in 1993 and completing his articles at Blake Castles in Graydon, Jordan began a career as a legal journalist, culminating in a decade as editor of three leading Canadian legal periodicals, The Lawyers Weekly, National, and the Canadian Corporate Counsel Association magazine. In 2007, Jordan launched an award-winning blog called Law 21, Dispatches from a Legal Profession on the Brink. Join us as Jordan discusses the role, responsibilities, and possibilities of lawyers and courts in the future. Just before we begin our episode today, I want to once again say thank you to our exclusive sponsor, LexisNexis Canada. For years, LexisNexis has led the charge for lawyers adopting legal technology and technological advancements in their practices. With programs like Lexis Advanced Quick Law, PC Law, and Lexis Practice Advisor Canada, LexisNexis has provided the essential tools for lawyers to evolve their practices and firms in ways that our guest today describes. As lawyers move into the future that Jordan Furlong envisions, LexisNexis will be with them, offering the tools and resources they require. Right now, LexisNexis has a customer appreciation book sale going on until December 31st, 2018, offering deep discounts on some of your favorite and essential titles. Visit www.lexisnexis.ca to learn more. Now let's start our episode of Of Counsel. So 
So today I'm here with Jordan Furlong. And Jordan, uh, like some of our guests, uh, didn't come from a family of lawyers. Rather, you pursued a law degree after an English literature degree. You graduated from Queen's Law in 93, uh, articled at Blake, Castles, and Graydon in 94, and then called in 95. After that, it seems like you applied um, some of your literature skills and became a legal journalist working at the editor for Lawyers Weekly, uh, the National Magazine, Canadian Corporate Council Association. You won uh, many awards during that time. And then in 2007, it seemed like it was somewhat of a pivotal time in your career where you launched uh, Law 21, Dispatches from a Legal Profession on the Brink, which went on to become the only non-American blog to be included six straight years in the ABA Journal's Blog 100. And Essentially, uh, what it seems to me is you became somewhat of a legal futurist, talking about the future of law and the business of law. I hope I'm not mischaracterizing that, but uh, how would you describe yourself, Jordan? You know, Sean, I think a legal futurist is a pretty accurate description of where I was when I started out in this business, because the at, at that time, you could really see that the legal profession, the legal marketplace was on the verge of something. You knew something was going to change, something had to give. And, and really over the, the, the subsequent decade, maybe the 10 to 15 years, we have seen that process kick in. So now what I tend to describe myself as is more of a legal market analyst than anything else for a couple of reasons. One, it's the analysis of what's happening in the market that's of most interest to me, figuring out what's happening out there, why is it happening, what kind of impact this is having on everybody involved, especially lawyers, uh, and what can we do about it? And also because, you know, the thing about, thing about the future is that it becomes the present, right? <laughs> you know, so now I think, I think I'm a legal presentist now <laughs> in terms of what's happening in the market today. So with this sort of forward thinking, I'm, I'm to be frank, I'm a little surprised you got into law in the first place because it seems like you, you this is obviously somewhat innate to you, thinking ahead and what law could be rather than what it is. So what started it all for you? Why did you even get into law school? You know, it was funny. It was kind of a combination of two things. One was the fact that, as you say, I had a degree in uh, English literature, uh, which didn't have, let's say, the most career-worthy aspects to it. It wasn't kind of thing where employers were banging down my door, we must have that man, <laughs> bring him into our lab. Uh, so part of it was, okay, what do I do with it? now. And the second was considering all the options out there. And I looked at law school, which I had never never really considered, because as you say, there's no lawyers in my family. And it sounds very, I suppose, unsophisticated to say it now, but I thought that's a line of work where I can actually help people make things better, right? And, and I suppose you can say, okay, sure, it's the idealism of youth and so forth. But I think a lot of people went into law for that reason. And, and I thought, you know what, it is something where I will probably find a degree of intellectual engagement. I think I could do this kind of work. Um, but you know what? Here's the funny thing. I could afford to do that. I could I could make that decision in 1989 was when I made the call to pursue this. And that was at a time when the annual tuition at Queen's Law was somewhere in the range of like $2,000. And that is not an option today. Not when at Queen's it's 10 times that. Maybe it's more now. I don't know. And you don't have the chance to just try something out to see if it's right for you. And I do that. I understand why to a certain extent that has happened. But I really think there's a real lost opportunity cost to that. A lot of people who might have wanted to try law out and turns out maybe they could have been good at it, they're not trying now. Yeah, that's true. There's a real pricing out of experimentation and, and obviously sort of blending people who may not have got into it otherwise and, and that type of uh, mixture that happens within their career and obviously um, crystallizing something like you have done in your career. 
So I want to ask you about Law 21. In 2007, you launched Law 21, which is entitled Dispatches from a Legal Profession on the Brink, which went on to become uh, the only non-American blog to be included in the ABA's journal. And I'm curious, what motivated you to start writing about this? Is it something, because, you know, like as I see it, a lot of lawyers don't really think there's a problem. And there is, but <laughs> why did you think there'd be a market for lawyers to be told that there is. Well, you know, and it's funny, you're right, because I think a lot of lawyers don't believe it's a problem. I think a lot of lawyers, when I talk to them about a legal market, they kind of look at me funny. So what are you talking about, right? I think a lot of lawyers don't realize they are in a market for legal services in the way that other, you know, industries and professions consider that they are. But for me, the process of getting to, to Law 21, again, it's, it's always kind of funny in retrospect. So when I moved from the Lawyers Weekly to National Magazine, we moved from a weekly format to like eight times a year or something. And you can't do the breaking news and cases and so forth. So now we're looking more at like the business of law and trends and so forth. And and so I'm, I'm looking at all this thinking, this doesn't make any sense to me, right? Why, why are we doing it this way? Nobody seems to be happy. A whole lot of people seem to be dissatisfied with the operation and so forth. So I began to get more really kind of worked up about this. Now, at the time, I'm the editor of a magazine for the largest lawyer association in the country. And it was sometimes a little hard for me to separate my desire to advocate for change in the profession from that position. Here's an example. Somewhere, I think around 2006, we ran a cover story on the breakdown in the family court system, which, and sad to say, of course, you could do the same story again today. Um, and I got rather worked up about this. And I wrote my editorial uh, saying, and I think I let it off with something like, it's time for us to prepare for the post-lawyer justice system, because we are failing in our jobs as the guardians and the, and, and the protectors of the system to make it work. So this gets picked up the next day by Canwest News Service, runs on the front page of like 10 papers across the country. And I get called into the executive director's office. And in great credit to him, he did not actually, you know, fire me on the spot. Uh, but he did suggest that maybe I should be a little more careful about what I'm actually saying in the magazine, because a lot of members in the profession were not happy that that appeared in their magazine. So... That seemed to me to be a good time to say, you know what, and this was the mid-2000s, blogs were becoming a thing. And and around the same time, uh, and uh, very happy coincidence, uh, Simon Fodden, um, you know, the, the wonderful uh, late founder of Slaw, uh, reached out to me at one point and said, listen, would you like to write a column for us now and again about law? And I said, yeah, I'd be delighted to, sure. And he says, what do you want to call it? I said, call it future law, because, you know, I give no thought to these things. So he says, great. Gets back to me a day later. You know what? Future law is copyrighted. Uh, what else he got? And I said, oh, geez, I don't know. Law 21 uh, <laughs> for 21st century law. He says, great. And that's honestly where the name came from. And I began, so I wrote a few columns and I, they went pretty well. So I said, all right, I'll start a blog. And, and I, the blog was a place where I could say all the things I wanted to say about the profession, not just to be harping about it or complaining about it, but to do a sense of, I'd like to help diagnose what's going on with this particular profession, this market, this community, this system, and suggest ways we can make this better. And it, it was to my great surprise that people read it and thought there was some value in it and said, okay, yeah, let's let's hear more about this, to read more. And that's kind of where it all kind of started from there. So tell me where Law 21 has taken you then, because uh, obviously your now present day obligations are in consulting and you go and today we're sitting at the, the Queen's uh, Business School uh, right across from the law school and you just came from a 
what will be soon a joint venture and releasing um, a diplomacy uh, re- centered around this type of uh, discussion. Um, what are you doing today and where did law, how did Law 21 form you uh, or, or change the direction that you, you are today? Well, I remember when I first began writing about this stuff, I would get calls every so often. Someone saying, look, we're having a panel at this at this event or something. Would you come and would you be willing to speak at it? And I said, oh, yeah, sure. Happy to. You know, it'd be great. And they said, how much do you charge? And I thought, oh, okay. <laughs> I didn't know this was a thing. Uh, and it turns out it is, or at least it could be uh, for this line of work. And I consider myself to be incredibly fortunate because a great deal of what I do is I give presentations to law firms at retreats, to legal organizations, to almost pretty much every kind of player in the legal market, marketers and business development, educators, professional development, you name it. And and I just go in and I basically take all the insights that I've been able to make uh, in, in my analysis of the market and say, look, in your specific situation, this, I want to explain why the ground shifting under your feet and I want to suggest this is what you should do about it. And that has been kind of the bulk of the work that I do. Uh, I, I have, against all odds and expectations, have become a professional speaker in the whole area of the, the rapid evolution of the legal market. And and again, I'm extremely fortunate because there's very few people who get to do this. And, and I'm just lucky that I get a chance to do something that I would do anyway, right? I will talk someone's ear off about this stuff, but it's a, uh, but it's it's. I mean, that that's most of what I'm doing these days. Do you see that as something that can only be done from the outside rather than the inside of the practice? Because uh, you know, it seems the way you're describing, even working at the national, there's a lot of internal constraints of what you can say about lawyers if you have to constantly be worrying about reputation. It's certainly something I see that lawyers are immensely protective of the reputation to the point that you know they don't even want to say that they like a particular movie <laughs> in fear that someone will be offended or a judge might not like it. Yeah. That's a really interesting point. I hadn't considered it, but I think you're quite right. I think that outsider perspective, and if there's one thing I think I've been good at is bringing that uh, to, to, the, to the profession and to be able to look at it from a bit of a distance and say, folks, look, if you pull the camera back and take a widescreen view, you will see a system that is certainly in, a, in an advanced degree of sickness and quite possibly in a degree of crisis. And it's very hard to see that from the inside. This is one of the things I talk when I when I say to law firms, and I, and I, it's funny. I was speaking yesterday to a group of associates, and I said, I know it may seem strange to you to look at the way the partners do things, but you have to understand if you've been doing things for a long time inside a very insular culture that has been successful for a long time doing a certain thing, it never occurs to you that you would do it differently or, or or that you should consider it. And the suggestion that you might is not only considered irrational, it's almost kind of insulting, right? Mm-hmm. What's wrong with the way I do it? What's Are you being critical of me and so forth? And lawyers being a little thin-skinned tends to encourage that too. Right, so. the, the millennial uh, blasphemy that goes around <laughs> the inside of the exactly. offices. So I, I want to break that down in practical terms, and I, I'm, I know I'm going to oversimplify things, but as best you can, can you tell me what you see as some of the largest challenges facing typical law firms? Let's start with a small firm or sole practitioner. What do you think is a real disconnect that you advise upon? For solo practitioners and small firm lawyers, the the challenges are manifold. And I think a good illustration of them is found uh, Clio, which I'm sure you know, and many of the listeners do as well, uh, cloud-based practice management software company, produces a legal trends report uh, annually. In fact, they have just literally released the newest one this morning. Uh, I haven't seen it yet. But last year's report, they basically uh, 
they they don't survey lawyers on this. They actually take all the billing data that they've used from their customers, from their clients, who are generally solo small firm lawyers, and they draw conclusions from it. And what they found was that the the typical uh, lawyer in their database only bills 2.2 hours of work a day, right? They'll work eight to nine to 10 hours, but only about a little over two of those gets billed. Only about one and a half of those ever gets collected. And, and, and that is a shocking observation to make, but it makes complete sense. And when you talk to lawyers in that position, a lot of them times because because I got a business to run, man. I have all the administrative duties. I have, I'm the person who turns on the lights and I do all this and everything. There's back and forth stuff. There's all this the stuff that fills up your day, you know, and you're running the business and you're repping the business and you're developing the business and so forth. And the amount of work you can actually bill out is, is actually pretty small. So I, I think that is a real struggle and a real challenge for lawyers in that situation. I think one step in the, in the direction you can take there is to do more of something that is really hard for lawyers, which is to delegate, which is to say, you know what, just because I could do this doesn't mean I should, right? Maybe I shouldn't be opening my mail, <laughs> as, as a for instance. Maybe I shouldn't be answering the phones all the time. And that doesn't mean you necessarily have to have someone sitting in an office outdoor doing all that stuff. You can, you can, there, there's companies out there that will handle all your incoming calls remotely, as a for instance. There's ways to do that cost effectively. But I wrote a piece about this for Slaw a little while ago. I said, the way to exercise leadership in a sole practice or a small firm environment is to say, how can I remove as many barriers as possible from the most important people in this job? And the most important person in a sole practice is you. What's in the way of you running a high quality, successful business? all this stuff. So take it off your desk, put it on someone else's, right? Let the people, let people who are trained and specialized in this stuff do it. And you focus on the lawyer stuff because that's what's important. I think there's a longstanding tradition. Maybe it's part of the culture of sole practitioners and small firm lawyers to say, I'm a lone wolf. I'm a one person shop. You know, it's, and, and I get that. I get that kind of, kind of brave pioneering sense and so forth. But I think it does run into a wall when you realize this is keeping me from doing what I actually want to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and you see that a lot because I think there's a lot of, like you say, the, the issues are manifold and one of the issues is budget. You know, a lot of lawyers go out when they don't really have a budget to start a business and you see lawyers who'll, you know, have a business card and a website and they think they're good to go. Whereas if you said to a sandwich shop, you know, I've got 20 bucks in the bank and uh, I've got some bread, you'd think <laughs> that's not really. So moving then to the medium practice. So let's let's assume that um, lawyer, uh, she starts up and things are going well and she's learned to delegate. At what point, uh, is there a tipping point where you can take that next step into a medium-sized firm? Like how do you scale up once you've got the smaller pieces in place? Well, mid-sized firms, and, and, and part of the problem with it, it's an inherently difficult uh, thing to define. A mid-sized firm in Toronto and a mid-sized firm in Smith's Falls are two entirely different uh, beasts. But generally, if if you are a mid-sized firm, then you almost define yourself in the negative, right? I'm not a sole practice. I'm not a two or three person job, nor am I one of these huge national or, or, or global operations. So we know what you're not, but what are you? And I think for a lot of firms in that middle part, the challenge when you find yourself there is 
how do we define ourselves? What are our markets, right? Who, you know, because you can't serve everyone. Even the global firms can't serve everyone. So where can you do the most good? Where are you going to have the biggest impact? Where, where do you have the most strengths? And we can talk about the ways in which you can measure those strengths and, and, and assess a market. But you have to know the markets that we are best at. Focus on them. And if that means leaving some markets go, that's fine, right? Let other people do that. And then inside those markets say, and what is my specific value proposition? Because the solos out there saying, listen, low overhead, one person shop, nimble, flexible, I'm on it. And the global firm saying size and scale, and we have an office in Kazakhstan, whatever the case might be, <laughs> right? And and for certain types of clients, those are real values. So what's your value proposition? If someone says to you, why should I hire you other than anybody else on either size of you on the, on the size scale? And you need an answer beyond, I'm really good or I'm really smart and so forth. Now, to answer the question you actually asked me uh, at the start of that, which is how do you scale up from that? Um, traditionally, I think when law firms decided or lawyers decided we want to have, I want to have more market share, I want to build a bigger business here and so forth, we have traditionally grown in law firms by adding lawyers. That's basically it. That is the only way we've ever known because the only way we've ever been able to make money is through the application of lawyer time, expertise, and effort. So this is why the media in the legal uh, environment pay so much attention to mergers and acquisitions and why the pages are always filled with, oh, such an, a firm A has poached such and such partner from firm B and so forth, because we're all fascinated with this kind of stuff. The difficulty, though, I think, is that simply growing through lawyers there, there are built-in speed restrictions and size restrictions. All You're really only adding one lawyer capacity at a time. Uh, and, and this kind of segues into, if we want to talk about larger firms as well, at a certain point you have to realize that the point is not to get bigger in terms of the number of lawyers. The point is not to get bigger in terms of the amount of revenue coming in. The point is, how can I grow my market share? How can I increase my market dominance and how can I brand myself with the clients I want to serve in ways that will allow me to be as cost effective and as profitable as possible? Because that's how businesses think, right? And and I think that's where a midsize firm, a small firm wants to become midsize, I would say, don't think about lawyers quite as much as you would think about systems, think about software, think about alliances with other providers in the market today. Yeah, I think that's very insightful. And one thing, you know, I've learned in practice too, because I went out on my own, I think it was in 2010, and it took me a while uh, to get back to the point where I was doing as well as I was in my first year, despite the desire to scale up. So, you know, we hired more lawyers and we actually, well, I was making less money because you realize that scale in and of itself isn't something that necessarily generates into profit. And, you know, only through looking at it in a way that recognizes business models and thinking about delegation, uh, do you start to see these these efficiencies you're talking about? So I, I I appreciate that insight. Um, what about um, just in general, you know, this is maybe large scale, but also in, in government too, is is there something fundamentally wrong in the way that lawyers uh, kind of look at legal problems and apply it in a macro scale? The difficulty with working in, in, a, in a government organization, any kind of a, a government law department, and you could argue in a certain way there are similar restrictions if you are working corporate in-house as well. And, and the beauty of it is you've just got the one client, right? You know, one institutional client. There are many stakeholders within that client you have to deal with, but there's just one overarching uh, issue to deal with. But as a lawyer within that framework, it's, it's like a double whammy. You already have the natural lawyer reticence to change things up, to try something, any, anything 
radically different, and, and we can talk about the reasons why lawyers are averse to that kind of a thing. But you're also in an environment within government where, and and I, and I don't want to overgeneralize, obviously, but the culture of many government departments is really built around this idea of it is stability, right? What we did yesterday is what we want to do today is what we want to be doing again tomorrow. Stability is something that is prized. Seniority is something that is earned and so forth. I'm not saying these are bad things, but when you're in the business of providing solutions, which is what I think fundamentally lawyers are, are in, are, are, that, that's their calling, it is hard to do that in an environment where process is more important than outcome. And again, I don't want to slander entire, you know, swaths of, of, of our society, but a lot of people's experience, both inside and outside of government departments and any kind of large institutional environment is, uh, you know, the, the, the process becomes more important. And there's that old saying, any institution will tend to prolong the problem to which uh, it is the solution. And I think that's, that's a factor there. So it's a real challenge. I hear from, I've been contacted a number of times by leaders of uh, government departments, especially at the federal level and in some provinces, who want, who recognize we need to change, we need to shift, but they're, you know, it's, it's an uphill battle for anybody in a legal environment. In a government legal department, it's like straight uphill. <laughs> right. So let's talk about that. I, I want to know from your perspective from the outside and particularly in consulting lawyers to try and change so that they can deliver solutions efficiently, effectively. What do you find particularly challenging to deal with as, uh, with lawyers? Is it their education? Is it their perspective? It, it just seems sometimes we're, we're hardwired not to take risks that businesses would and yeah. move forward. Well, you know, and it's funny, right? Because it's, it's not like I've advised a ton of other professionals, although I, I'm sure doctors aren't a ton of fun to deal with. Um, but, but for lawyers in particular, there, there's a, there's, they're almost infamous. We are almost infamous uh, for our difficult, the difficulties that we, we, we create for people who want to advise or consult or help us in certain areas. And there is truth to the idea that we are, yes, risk averse up to a point. I, I wrote it, <laughs> mentioning Slaw all the time here, I wrote another piece for Slaw just last week where I, I kind of called into question this idea, you know, when lawyers say we're risk averse, and I said, we don't use this so much as a diagnostic tool to say, you know what, we're risk averse, we should do something about that. We say it more as, ah, we're risk averse, what are you going to do? Ah, the sky's blue, water's wet, what's the next thing? Is it billable? That's fine. And we use it as an excuse for inaction, right? Um, and one of my points was that, look, uh, it, it's okay to be risk averse, that's fine. But what we actually are is change averse, right? And I said, if you're in a car speeding towards a cliff, it would be very risky not to change your direction, right? Not to slam on the brakes. And yet there's so many different parts of our legal system, which are either, if they're not in crisis, they are rapidly galloping in that direction, that it, it is precisely the failure to change, the failure to accept that possibility that is that is problematic. So, so some of that is yes. There, there is a there's a change aversion. There is I I don't want to be too critical here today, but there's almost like an embarrassment aversion. Lawyers hate looking bad. Hate it. They hate looking bad in front of their peers, in front of clients, in front of uh, any other stakeholders in the business, um, because we have a very deep set aversion to failure. Right? This idea that oh you failed, you lost, you messed up. I mean this is the stuff of lawyer nightmares. And I think this probably goes back to law school. It goes back to self-selection. We're the kind of people who love to succeed, therefore we love law school. 
which is very different to an entrepreneurial mindset, which is often, you know, this is my fourth restaurant I'm on now, yeah. and, and that there's almost a sense of pride in it that this one's going to work. And- <laughs> well, yes, that's such a good point, you know, because when you talk to business clients and you ask them about their frustrations with lawyers, what they'll often say is, I, I will present the lawyer with a situation. They'll say, no, no, you shouldn't do that. It's too risky. And the business person says, risk is part of my life. I, I If I don't, risk is where I find my money. <laughs> that's where I make my profit, right? And I accept the fact that risk might not work out. So don't tell me it's risky. I shouldn't do it. Tell me I know it's risky. Tell me the degree and the percentage. Tell me what you think the the quantum of the potential penalty is and what you think the quantum of the potential payout is. That's useful information. And I think we need a more mature relationship with risk. I think we could learn a lot from our business clients and, and from people just around us every day. People mess up all the time. People fail all the time. It's okay. Most of the time we don't die. We're not doctors. We don't, you know, we don't have that kind of uh, worry on our hands. I think a more mature approach to risk would do us a ton of good. But even in law school, you know, we're always taught about liability. And I think the fear, especially in businesses, if you don't give the right advice, you're going to wind up before a multi-million dollar lawsuit and uh, these sorts of things that don't necessarily work into business. But, you know, I think this raises another interesting issue. And that is, um, you know, watching some of your talks, uh, one of the, the biggest problems is uh, for unrepresented people is they just don't want to deal with lawyers. And um, why do you think this is so, that people just don't want to engage lawyers at all? They'd rather just figure it out on their own, even if it means a disaster. Lawyers, uh, I suppose that's an old story that we have uh, a bit of a pub- public relations problem. Um, and and yeah, we can point to all the movies and the TV shows and so forth, and that's fine. And yeah, to a certain extent, that's true. I mean, we often get, uh, you know, the, the I, I love Lionel Hutz more than most people, but he's not the best <laughs> spokesperson in the world. But at the same time, you know what? Perry Mason was a popular character in his day. Atticus Finch was a popular character. Jack McCoy, to go more to my own era, right? It is possible to be a lawyer in in the public sphere, in 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 the fictional world, and still be uh, you know popular and well liked. I think for most people, and this is partly my own instinct and partly from the research I've been able to gather, there are various reasons why. People, many people tend to be very averse to the idea of going to a lawyer. It is absolutely true that there is the cost of the lawyer and the perceived cost, which is actually probably even worse. I think for a lot of people, what they fear a lawyer would cost them is less than what it actually would. But the reputation we have, not just is that we're expensive, but it's that as soon as you even glance in the lawyer's direction, on goes the meter, right? And and it's one of these things you find people don't want to phone up their lawyers and ask them a simple question because they were afraid that the lawyer will say, you know what, that's interesting. Let me do 10 hours of research and I'll get back to you with an answer, but it'll be five pages long. And and so I think there's a real kind of reluctance people have. I'm just afraid of using a lawyer because I don't know what's going to happen at the end of it. And it's that uncertainty. And it's, it's not just the billable hour kind of thing. It's that, again, we want to reduce all risk. We want to eliminate all risk, right? So when it says, give me an answer to this question, I will give you a fantastic answer, which will tell you everything you want to need. You know what? Just give me something that's good enough. And lawyers aren't very good at that. So Cost is an issue, no question about that. But when you dig into the research and you, and you find what people like Rebecca Sandifer in the U.S. and, Ju- and uh, Julie McFarlane here in, in Canada have found, it's just fascinating the way people tend to view legal issues. First of all, people will often not identify a legal issue that they're experiencing as an actual legal issue, right? Uh, what, what Rebecca Sandifer did, her, her, her big insight 
She didn't say to people, tell me about legal problems you've had. She said, tell me about problems. And they would have this whole list of issues that they've gone through for their family or their business or their kids or what have you. And a whole bunch of them are actually legal, but they don't think of them as legal. And because they don't, they assume there's no remedy for them. A lot of times, and maybe this has been more the case in the U.S. and Canada, I don't know, but a lot of times they'll say, you know what, it was just, it was just an act of God, right? It was just faith. There's nothing I can do about it, just bad luck, you know, and they never even consider that there might be a possibility that they could get some help or some assistance on that. So part of that is lack of public legal education, which we can talk all day about how important that is, and it is. Part of it is a sense of, oh, yeah, yeah, it's a problem. It's it's not that serious. I don't have to call in a lawyer, for God's sake, you know, that kind of a thing. So, So I think we would do really well. And this is one of the things that bothers me so deeply when bar associations carry out things like, you know, public image enhancement campaigns for lawyers. Oh, lawyers aren't as bad as you think. Here, here's a story of my my personal lawyer uh, and how wonderful he was. People don't care and they won't want to care. We need to stop making about us. I would much prefer to see these efforts placed into, look at these studies, figure out what are the most common things people figure aren't legal but actually are and say, did you know there is an answer to this? There is a remedy to this. There is a cure. You don't have to suffer the disease. There is a cure. And it starts with phoning this number to talk to a lawyer referral service at your local law society. That would do a ton more good for the general society, for clients in particular. And you know what? It would help our image as well while we're at it. Right. And, you know, I think you're onto something there because there's a real um, uh, dark cloud over what it means to get a lawyer. You know, you don't know the price. Um, you don't know where the issue is going to go. Um, and I, I see it as a real issue of transparency. And it's not just lawyers. I mean, I, I have to place some blame on, blame on the courts as well for being largely incompatible in even knowing what courts do as well. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm an advocate for a long time of, of more transparency in the courts, particularly as it relates to cameras and things like that, because we can all say we can go to court and watch at any time. But, you know, to go in and watch a family uh, issue resolve, for example, you start to realize, oh, okay, that lawyer just did that and made things easier, and I didn't know about this. Uh, but it's hard to kind of do that in practical terms. So very long way of asking you, do you see... Um, solutions that the courts might be able to pass on to the public as part of that re-education? I would love the courts to play a greater role in this. Um, I, I would love the courts as a first step to realize that they have a role in this. Nine times out of ten, when you hear a judge uh, or someone in a court position talk about access to justice, the first thing and the last thing out of the mouth is lawyers cost too much. If you lawyers would just lower your fees, we wouldn't have these problems. And it is true that the cost of engaging a lawyer is quite high and out of the reach of most people. But to pretend that if every lawyer was suddenly free, that the court system would flow like a like like a reservoir after the the dam is lifted, is it? It's not true. Courts are expert systems designed to be used by experts, not by anybody else, that were designed to handle a certain volume of uh, procedures that followed a very set kind of way. They they are to to use a favorite Richard Susskind term, they're bespoke, right? They were never meant to be used. To the to the volume that they are today, uh, with the complexity that they are today, and again with the, the the rush of people representing themselves, what frustrates me is that 
I really don't see judges and court officials taking this kind of thing seriously. I'm seeing more and more examples of how they are exacerbating the problem. A lawyer in Alberta I saw on Twitter the other day basically said, um, I had to I had to get in the car and drive to another jurisdiction to show up, make a statement for five minutes, and then leave and come back because they wouldn't let me do it uh, here, right? It was 10 hours of driving time, all of which my client's going to pick up, or I'm going to pick up one or the other, right, for nothing. Right or down in the U.S., a court a court staffer who who said uh, no no this has to be this has to be typed this has to be typed on a typewriter for you to use it. And my favorite this also comes out of the states. A lawyer uh, goes to f- file something at the court and the and the court clerk says uh, no that this uh, this document's no good this is what you need and the lawyer says this is from your own website and the court staff person says and. <laughs> right, right, and so it's it is disingenuous to be to use the nicest term I can for courts and judges to pretend that they are not a major part of this. Courts have become, to a great extent, I think, calcified. They value form over substance, procedure over solution, and decorum over common sense and compassion. Just today, Quebec Court of Appeal overturns this. I'm going to use a strong word here, despicable ruling from a lower court that said a woman could not testify, could not show up in court because she's wearing a hijab, right? And it's like, that's, I don't know what the rating is on this <laughs> on this podcast. Why don't I use the <laughs> word I want to use, right? But that should be unacceptable. And a person who makes that ruling should be kicked off the bench immediately. But that won't happen, right? Because the protectionist walls that judges have built around themselves are at least as high as what lawyers have built around themselves. And I'll go one inch further on that and say, I get that. I get the importance of the independence of the courts. And I get the importance of judicial independence as a third branch of government. It is absolutely significant. But we are living in a time of rising populism. We are living in a time where more and more governments say, I'll just slap the notwithstanding clause in anything I feel like, because the hell with the charter, right? right? And courts need the moral high ground. Courts need the operational high ground. And more and more, it feels like, again, part of the problem, not part of the solution. Now, in fairness, there are some judges who at least um, try. Absolutely. uh, But, you know, it seems like their voices are drowned out. So what inroads do you see, if any? Have you been able to engage at all with the judiciary to see where these changes might come? Is it coming from government? Is it coming from, you know, younger lawyers who are being trained and eventually become appointed? I've, I've spoken on a few occasions with judges at conferences and so forth. I suppose the most striking of those is the Canadian Judicial Council at their 40th anniversary event a few years back uh, in Ottawa, or just across the river in, in Gatineau, uh, engaged me, I don't know why, uh, to, to address them. I, I appreciate it, but it's like, wow, that was a risk, um, <laughs> to talk to them about these kinds of issues. And I had, I had every chief justice and chief judge in the country, including Chief Justice McLaughlin, uh, in that room. And, and I basically said, the courts are wonderful. The courts are so good that you are the third branch of government. You are the guardians of the criminal justice system. You are a bulwark of individual rights against the state. There's so many things you do really well. But you are also the final arbiter of private disputes, and you are going to lose that job. You're in the process of losing it right now. That was not a universally popular sentiment, um, I can tell you. And I had a number of chief justices get up and challenge me on that, and I was happy to engage them on it. And a number of them came out to me afterwards and said, you're absolutely right. And I don't want to name names, but some very high-profile judges said, you're right, but, you know, the this, just as I've kind of been saying, the culture just rolls on. The inertia is just overwhelming. Right. 
Right. What about um, moving the topic then to regulatory bodies? Because they are much more dynamic if they want to be. They can change their rules at any time, and they do. Um, do you think they're doing enough to address the concerns of some of these um, future issues on the horizon? If we were having this conversation five years ago, I would have said, nah. <laughs> uh, I, would have, I would have repeated my longstanding uh, disdain for the way law societies in Canada, and I can extend that to state bars and courts in the U.S., are, are dealing with this issue. In all fairness, I do think regulators, at least in Canada, have picked up their game over the last few years. Even as something as small as the Law Society of Upper Canada finally agreeing to become the Law Society of Ontario. You know, it, it was a small thing, but you know what? I didn't think they do it. I wrote a piece uh, somewhere where I said, you know, and I'm sure the, measure, the motion will fail again. It didn't, right? And that that's a small thing, but I think it's a significant one because it, it, was, it was a sign of we are willing to at least consider change in the way we've always gone about things. Ontario was a uh, funny jurisdiction because specifically, of course, as of about, what, 10, 15, I've lost track how long ago it was. But when paralegals came under the uh, the official supervision of the Law Society. Yeah, it was about 10 years ago. 10 years yeah. ago. And, and so we're all licensees now. And, and that was, I think, again, probably a more important moment than many lawyers realized because that was the point at which it wasn't just lawyers anymore who are part of this. It was a recognition that there were other providers of legal services beyond lawyers. The new treasurer uh, of the Law Society of Ontario, Malcolm Mercer, wrote a piece. I'm plugging Slaw so often today, I'm not meaning to. <laughs> uh, but he wrote a piece for Slaw and on his own website, basically uh, asking the question, not entirely tongue-in-cheek, so if Amazon starts selling forms online, should Amazon have a seat at the Law Society? Should Amazon be a bencher? Right? Uh, should LegalZoom be a bencher? That kind of a thing. And 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 I think the answer to that question is under our current approach to regulation. Yes, they should. In any sane universe, no, they shouldn't. The problem with saying, "Oh, well, we'll we'll bring paralegals in and we'll let them be part of the process, and we'll let we'll bring notaries in and let them be part of the governance process," and I think they should be involved because they are frontline people providing needed services. But it's all geared around the provider. This is a problem by saying we have a regulator of lawyers. It's like because when you say you're a regulator, you are focusing yourself on the provider, not on the providee. You are talking about the input, not the output, which is the old, it's the original lawyer sin, is to care about input, what's billable by me, rather than the output, what's received by you. So, and, and the thing of it is, there is nothing close to an easy answer uh, on this. Because there, we are heading rapidly towards a future where legal services will be provided by a range of people, by a range of companies and institutions and processes and machines uh, come the day. Um, and, and simply to keep adding these people to the governance board is not going to be the answer. Uh, we're going to have to find a way to figure out how can we ensure justice as best we can. can how do we create like a legal services outcome board, so to speak? Um, and you know what? We're right in the middle of figuring all this stuff out in, in England and Wales. Again, literally just today, they announced that Stephen Mason, who's probably the leading thinker on legal regulation in the world, has been appointed to start looking at us another major regulatory overhaul uh, over there. And so much of the pioneering work in regulation has started uh, in uh, in Great Britain, and I think it'll be very instructive to see what happens there. 
it's I, I don't pretend to have anything close to the answers here, but I do know that the more we move away from this idea of what's fair to the lawyers and more towards the idea of what gets the best outcome, not just for individual clients, but for society in general, that's where we need to be heading. And I would like to think the law societies will get us there soon. It's going to take a while. I think we both know that. <laughs> so let's let's back up a little bit, because I think a lot of people listening to this podcast right now, particularly law students, sort of say to themselves, yeah, of course. But um, what happens in law school, and you've talked about this, that you go there and you're taught to think like a lawyer. You're taught about liability, risk, punishment for wrong, hyper-focus on minutia of detail that no one really cares about. So do you think that this teaching needs to be recalibrated? Is it fundamentally off? Um, What do you think of some of the, have you, well, let me put it another way. Have you seen um, signs of encouragement in law schools that are trying to provide innovative ways of thinking the approaches that you're discussing. I absolutely have. And and again, five, ten years ago, wouldn't have had as many examples to, to choose from. But today, there are a growing number of honorable exceptions to the rules that law schools have lost their way. Uh, you mentioned we're, we're here at Queen's uh, University today. In Queen's Law, my alma mater uh, and yours yeah, well, yeah. um, has, uh, has really been doing some interesting things and really pushing this envelope forward. Osgood Hall has been busy in this area. University of Calgary under Dean Ian Holloway. And another schools that I, I can't pull uh, to mind immediately within Canada and a raft of them in the U.S. as well. I work closely with Suffolk University Law School in Boston with their institute, institute for um, uh, legal innovation and technology. So more and more schools are not just getting it, because a lot of them get it, but are actually taking steps to change their approach. At the same time, I think these are still the exceptions more than the rule. And the rule still is that these are institutions that in terms of calcification make the courts look <laughs> spry and young and make make law firms look like Google, um, <laughs> you know. And and again, it's it's it, it is it, it, it's part of the DNA of these organizations to say our job is to teach people the principles of law, and that's what they were doing in 1959, and that's what they're going to be doing in 2019 for the most part. And you can tinker around the edges. You can say we're going to add the certificate, we're going to add these courses in this and that and nothing. That's great, but the fundamental nature of the beast is still based on the idea that we are teaching what is essentially an undergraduate degree in law, introducing people to legal concepts in the first year, introducing them to the basics of various practice areas in the next two years, and then sending them off. Law schools, I think, need to figure out why they exist. And it's not just their job, it's our job as well. Everybody else has to be a stakeholder. One of the things I'm constantly getting after law firms and regulators is, y'all complain about law schools all the time. When was the last time you went in there, sat down, trying to figure out the nature of their challenges, and then said to them, this is what we need from you? Right. We do. Speaking of someone who's sitting here complaining, we we do a whole (laughs) lot of complaining in the law. We don't do enough talking to each other. And we need to figure out what's the purpose of law school. Right. Because I think it is no longer or no longer simply teach people the principles of law, though I think it's pretty important. I don't think it is simply a question of teach people how to be lawyers. Uh, I think if that's all a law a law school does, if it's, if it's essentially a trade school, again, there's value to that, but that can't be the whole thing. Uh, you know, the, the whole question of uh, the, the history of law, the purpose of law, jurisprudence, the, the role of justice. Um, we don't, you know, we're in danger almost of going too far the other way, right? Courses on robot lawyers, but not enough courses on uh, the history of, of accessible legal services and what that means in the 21st century. So 
the major thing I would like to see the entire profession embrace is this idea that legal education, number one, yes, it's a lifetime thing. It really is. And you could say that about any, any group. But this idea that three years of law school plus one year of articling, and I'll tackle articling later, <laughs> um, and then you're ready to go, no. I wrote a piece, one of the very first blog posts I wrote about 10 years ago was called The Seven-Year Law Degree. And it was based on this survey I did where I talked to people, I said, how long did it take you to feel like you knew what you were doing as a lawyer? And by far, the most common answer was three, four, five years in. That's where I really felt up to that point, I'm still guessing. I've got imposter syndrome. Uh, I, I'm sort of, well, I think I got up. It's a high wire act. It's highly tense, whatever. It takes seven years, I think, from first day of law school to the end of, say, about your third or fourth year of practice before most people say, now I'm ready to be a lawyer. I think we should think hard about reconstructing our whole approach to legal education admission and competence development around this idea. Uh, law school alone isn't enough. Law school is just one piece of the puzzle. We all have a part to play in figuring out what the puzzle looks like and how to, how to fix it. Yeah, you raise some very, very uh, interesting points. And as you're describing it, it, it almost comes back to what you're saying about the uh, the medium-sized firm in the sense that we're, we'll take on any case. We do a little bit of family, we do a little bit of real estate and a little bit of estates, but nothing particularly well specifically. And I wonder if law school kind of falls into that same trap because, you know, as you, you speak to law students and a lot of it, um, a lot of times they'll say, well, I'm not really sure what I'm going to do yet. And you say, you're in third year, you know, <laughs> you're three of the seven years into it. And I, I think there's a, a, you know, one one of the things that I've um, often thought of is in moving into articling is the idea that right from the outset, you kind of need to decide where you're going with this. And maybe if we backed up a little bit and said this particular law school is about getting a, a criminal specialization, this particular law school is about business, and then moving on there into some sort of graduated licensing. Because articling, uh, you know, as I see, you kind of fall into the same uh, problem where you're just a generalist of everything, potentially, unless that has uh, incidentally formed your career into practicing in a particular area. So, what do you think? Do you, do you think that that's part of the issue here? I absolutely do. And I think specialized law schools is something we're going to see in the future. And again, I, I don't reject the idea, and, I, and I, I, I like the idea, and I encourage it, that you do need this period of time to get people adjusted to, quote-unquote, thinking like a lawyer, because the principles of legal analysis don't come naturally to most people. They have to be kind of learned and adapted and tried out. And I do think first year is really important for that. But then I think at that point, most people have it. I think, frankly, you could probably graduate people after the first year of law school, and they wouldn't be that much different in terms of their analytical abilities than they are after, after the third year. So I would like to see law schools become a little more focused to provide streams, right? To say, okay, now here, if you, t you know, after the first year, take these 10 courses and you have a specialization in criminal. These 10, you have it in family. These 10, you have it in corporate. I, one, I, I'm writing a, uh, I've been asked to contribute with one of these like, like prediction pieces uh, to a website. And my prediction this year is going to be 25 of the largest corporations in the world based in the U.S. are going to get together. They're going to buy a law school. They're going to change the curriculum entirely to be entirely about working in-house as in, it's going to be an in-house counsel law school, right? Because from their point of view, it's like we are sick and tired of taking these generalist people who don't really know. They know a little bit about everything, a mile wide and an inch deep. We need people to hit the ground running, and we're going to change the legal education system to do that. And again, it's not that every law school ought to be like that, but at least some should. Some should adopt the idea that, look, 
every lawyer is a specialist, right? Uh, even I'm not sure you can even find many generalists these days who aren't, you know, younger than 50. Um, so reality is going to match up with that sooner or later. Yeah, you know, the only generalists that, that I'm aware of are the generalists that are practicing in smaller jurisdictions, which in and of itself is a specialization. It's a small, almost like a family practice for a doctor, and that's your specialization. You know, and for what it's worth, I mean, if there was a specific criminal law firm that I could, or law school, let's say that you now have your JDC, I think a lot of criminal lawyers would be looking there first and in similar areas of law. So let's talk about something that's uh, discussed a lot, and that is fee structures, because, um, you know, we always hear about uh, flat versus hourly, but uh, unbundled services. Uh, What are your views on that? You know, I should preface this with something I should have mentioned a lot earlier, Sean, and and you, of course, are a criminal justice practitioner. And the great majority of what I talk about tends to be focused on civil law practices for a whole bunch of a whole bunch of different reasons. And and sometimes I find myself saying, you know, but this doesn't fully apply to criminal law because da 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 because obviously the client base is very different, the market is very different, um, this kind of a thing. So and, and and so fees kind of come into this as as well a little bit too. So focusing on the idea at the moment just of sort of traditional Uh, civil law, multiple law practices. The point of a fee, I think, the point of a price ought to be geared toward the customer and the client. Uh, Gowlings ran a very clever ad a few years back saying, would you fly in an airline where you didn't determine what the fare was till you landed, right? No. And so why going with a law firm that won't tell you how much it costs until it's over, right? Or the classic example uh, of Client says to the law firm, how much is it going to cost me? And the firm says, well, we're really not sure. And the client says, your website says you've done 500 of these <laughs> in the last five years. How do you not know how much? Can you not even give me a freaking ballpark on this? So for me, it's, it, it is, first and foremost, it is giving people a price so that they know I'm going to pay either exactly this much or it's going to be within this range, this high or this low. And if you can't even do that, at least give it to me in chunks. Uh, there's a there's a law firm in Alberta. I suppose they're still there. I haven't checked recently. It's called the Patriot Law Group. Really interesting firm. It's a it was a husband and wife team. They're both uh, ex-military, and their their focus is almost entirely on uh, military personnel. That's their market. That alone is brilliant. But they also do primarily family law, and they do it all fixed fee. And the way they do it is they say, okay. The, the family law system, the, the divorce process is basically chunked out. There's a whole bunch of things you can do, and then there's a pause when the other side responds and the court does something, something like that. Then we move again. We will price every chunk for you as we go. We'll tell you, on average, how much all these other chunks have cost in the past. You have a general sense. But you will not be charged. You will know before you go any further how much it's going to cost. We guarantee you it's going to be this much. And if for any reason something crazy happens, we contact you. We say, here things have changed a little bit let's talk about the price side of things that is not out of reach for any of the, except the most absolutely novel and complex practices we could do that if we wanted to we just don't seem to want to and i don't think there's any good reason why not right no it's very good you know one of the things that uh is problematic for uh in criminal law in particular is that uh, sometimes the commitments that we make are on the retainers are far beyond what the court uh, will allow us to get out of, right? Yeah. So we'll say, okay, well, we'll come on and we'll do a fixed uh, a retainer for a bail hearing and up to a judicial pretrial, and we'll say it's it's this amount of money, and then the court will say, where are you going? 
We'll say, well, we weren't really retained for this four-day trial, but it's too late. Um, so maybe that comes back to a little bit of the courts of having some understanding of where some of these practical problems lie. I think so. And and I, and I appreciate, now at the same time, I also appreciate the judge's point of view to say, listen, you can't leave midstream, right? right. You know, you've gotten us this far, simply walking away, leaving this person here uh, to make it the rest of the way. It's, it's, it is, it's not on. Now, f- for me, this comes back to the whole question of, this ties into pricing as well. Uh, I wrote a, a piece a year or so ago quite critical of like value pricing in law. Um, and I don't mean to be because I, the concept is very valid and, it's, and, it's, and it's, a, it's a good idea. But there's all sorts of problems with value pricing, the idea that, okay, we're going to sit down, we're going to negotiate a price that has value to the client, has value to me and so forth. And it's like, who's got the time for that? The average client does not, maybe a massive corporation that has uh, billions of dollars in spend spread out over 15 different firms, fine, they can build a spreadsheet or whatever to do all that. But someone is getting divorced, right? Someone who needs a protection order, someone who's been pulled over and been arrested for something, they're not having a conversation about that. And what's more... And this is the point I also made. The problem with the value pricing is what is the value in letting someone who is living in a, in a country that has a deeply repressive regime that wants to arrest, prosecute, and kill you for the color of your skin or the orientation of your, uh, your, your sexual orientation or what have you, to get into your country and save their life? What's the value to that? It's off the charts. How much do immigration lawyers make, right? Compared to uh, M&A lawyers, compared to class action defense people, and so forth. Like, and and you, yes, it's a problem with the law. It's a problem with society. We don't we don't pay teachers as much as we should. We don't pay social workers as much as we should. So the solution for me to all of this is to say the private market is not a good arbiter of value for certain types of work. Criminal justice is one of those. I think family just, family cases is one of those. Immigration qualifies and a whole lot of, I hate the fact it gets grouped under poverty law. That's not fair. But like landlord-tenant work and wage, uh, wage disputes uh, and so forth. This is what legal aid was meant for. Legal aid was meant for, it's not just a question of paying people lawyers so that they'll do this stuff. It's a reflection of the fact that these have immense social value, that the failure to address them properly has staggering, not just social, but financial costs. And we're going to deal with it up front by funding this properly so people can actually work their way through the system and do it better. So, so this is one where I don't pin this on lawyers or even courts so much as I pin this on uh, a, a general social reluctance to fund legal services in these areas as much as they should. To my mind, this should almost be like a, a, an arm's length public utility in a lot of ways. Uh, it, it is part of the, the, the lifeblood of, of our society. We're probably a revolution or two away from from getting to that point. <laughs> yeah, sure. But to me, because I, because my thing is like I figure out the solution, and then I figure out how far away it is and how far it's going to get there. <laughs> but that's still the solution, and I think that's where we want to consider going at some point. What What can we do as lawyers to try and um, pass on what that value might be to clients? Because one of the problems um, I see in criminal law is the client having so little appreciation of what needs to be done, and in fairness to them. It's because it's absurd that I have to go to court five times to adjourn things just to speak to a judge, for example. And so it's there's a real disconnect there when we'll quote and say, okay, you know, you may be looking at $3,000 to get your theft charge withdrawn. And they'll say, well, why? I just want to go to court. Isn't my first day the time where I can tell them what happened? 
And have you seen any uh, innovative methods uh, develop over the years, or does this come back to basic communication? I would love to say I've seen innovative methods, especially for the better resolution of criminal charges. I'll tell you what, the only one I've ever seen that seems to have any resonance and proven effectiveness is sentencing circles in indigenous communities. Hmm. And and that's that predates us by a long time. But it's but it's this idea of the harm you carried out was a harm to the community and the community has a say in this process. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I think we have kind of lost that with the institutionalization and the mechanization of the criminal justice system. And don't get me started on the privatization of the incarceration system we see in the US and briefly we saw here as well, which makes things about a hundred times worse. But, but, but to me, again, it's one of those questions of if we were starting this brand new tomorrow for the first time, would we build what we've got now? Not a chance. We would never do that. So I think especially in criminal law, we got to go back to first principles on this and say, what are we trying to achieve? Now, again, everything I've described up till now has, in terms of how we make things better, has a cost and a difficulty rating of anywhere from significant to staggering. Mm -hmm. And this would be off the charts compared to that. Right. Because we have this idea firmly fixed in our society that if you catch someone who has that has committed a crime, you punish them. It's about punishment. It's about uh, retribution and making them pay for what they've done. And that's a very visceral feeling. It's a very strongly felt feeling. It's why we have all this tough on crime stuff that gets out there. And I'm not saying that doesn't have some validity and some part to play, at least from my perspective. I'm not a criminal practitioner, nor do I play one on TV. But... <laughs> There is so much more to understanding, not just the impact on the victim, but understanding what happened, why did it happen, and I think the most important thing, how do we make sure it doesn't happen again? Because that ought to be the point, it seems to me, right? If we can't be preventive in terms of the crime that just took place or the activity that just took place, let's at least be trying to see what we can do so that doesn't happen again the next time. And again, indigenous sentencing circles have a much better record of this. And, And I think to a certain extent, you would know this obviously better than me, but I think this is part of what victim impact statements were meant to achieve. The idea that, look your victim in the eye, listen to what they have to say. I think the problem is that it's warped into number one, to make the defendant feel as bad as possible, and number two, to uh, affect the sentence that's actually handed down. Right. It's only used as an aggravating feature. It's not uh, meant yeah. as a um, sort of reconciliation. reconciliation. It's ex post facto, not Exactly. Priori, it's yeah. reconciliation. It's healing, right? And there are there's a whole bunch of people who say, I don't want to hear about healing. I just want to hear about kill the you know? Yeah. And it's like, okay, you can have that, but then you're going to end up with uh, the system we have right now. So again, I've, I've gone off uh, track here a little bit. I think a lot of the part of the problem with criminal justice and how we're doing it right now is the same as it is for family justice. And that is, these are incredibly complex social phenomenon that we're trying to squeeze into a court system that fundamentally isn't really suited for them. It can only deal with a very small part of the issue. And I think... We're going to have to start, I think, by taking it at least out part of it out of the court system altogether and saying, again, how else might we achieve this? How else might we tackle this? What are we trying to achieve? That's a that's a really tough one. But again, the difficulty of the solution, I don't think detracts from the fact the solution is necessary and the solution is, is real. I want to move into a different area where you uh, have discussed before compensation plans for firms um, and and. This may relate in part to uh, some of the issues we're talking about, especially as access to justice. But 
Can you describe what you mean when you say that the compensation plans are wrecking law firms? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was the rather inflammatory title of a post I wrote a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> it, it was funny because I had been thinking about and reading about and talking about compensation plans and law firms for a long time and just a certain degree of frustration had been building up and it kind of boom, all came out in this in this lengthy post. The problem with law firm compensation systems that I see, or at least the primary problem, is generally speaking – people do the kind of things you incentivize them to do, you pay them to do. Uh, that is not to say you can use salary and compensation and so forth as a direct behavioral altering uh, act. There's plenty of, there's plenty of uh, studies out there that will uh, suggest that uh, salary is is not a direct driver of behavior, that it's actually you know culture and individual connection and engagement that matters a lot more. At the same time, though, in an environment where uh, virtually all activities are rewarded in some way, what you pay people to do is going to have an impact on what they actually do. And in law firms, 90%, 80 to 90% of what lawyers in particular and partners especially are paid to do, it falls into two categories. You bring work into the firm that people can do, and you bill work out of the firm based on the work that has, the, 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 the client work that's come in. And that's basically it. And there are so many downsides of that. There are downsides of that for the firm because obviously any kind of a firm, I mean, if you're a sole practitioner, fine. Okay, you want to eat what you kill? That's great. You go right ahead. You know, that works fine. But if you're running a legal services enterprise with multiple people doing involved multiple things, it can't be about how many hours are you are you billing out. It's got to be what is the overall health and profitability of the business and the sustainability of the business. So... A good law firm is more than just business coming in, hours going out. It is leadership. It is marketing and business development. It's mentoring and professional development of juniors and training. It's recruitment and retention. It's brand development. It is pro bono work. It is, again, it goes list goes on and on and on. And the bigger and the more complex the firm, the more layers are to it. But we don't reward lawyers for any of those things. We overcompensate them for just two aspects of what makes a good firm. And there are so many bad impacts of that. One of them that kills me. Just last week, I was talking to a lawyer at a large firm, and he had just come out of the annual meeting where they're deciding which associates are going to be invited into the partnership. And and, and he was saying, you know what, it's crazy because the only thing we're looking at is what business are they bringing in? How much, you know, because if you, don't have a, if you haven't built a book of business, we don't want you as a partner. And I've thought this before, how many really good lawyers have been cast out of law firms of all sizes. You know, they're really good at what they do. They're good people. They're smart, insightful, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But they're no good at selling what they do. And they're no good at selling what other people do. And you can train them a little bit. That's fine. But at the end of the day, it's just not what they like to do. Right. But they're still very valuable. They're still very valuable. But the the firm says, but we don't want you as a partner if you can't do this one thing. Mm -hmm. Right? So, So that bothers me. And the last thing that bothers me about the way law firms build their compensation systems is it's it's like it's like whipping the horses in the race right it is when you reward people for billing hours they will bill hours 
But in a, especially in a competitive environment like a law firm, with a competitive group of people like lawyers, when you don't put a cap, when you don't put a ceiling or a block at the top of that, then you are asking for overwork. You are asking for people to build 2,000, 2,500, 3,000 hours and to become incredibly unhealthy and live miserable lives and make people around them miserable. So one thing, one the, the very first suggestion I had in my, in my article was put a cap on the number of hours beyond which you will not pay anybody extra, right? Figure out a nice robust number that reflects strong performance in your market. That's going to vary from firm to firm, from market to market. But beyond that to say, you want to build another 500 hours, you go right ahead, but you're not getting paid for them. Right. So you may as well do some pro bono or something. Yeah, might as well do some pro bono. You might as well spend some time talking to clients you have served saying, oh, by the way, how is everything going? Were you happy with what I did last time? What else is new? Can I help you in something else? Law firms are still, for the most part, really unsophisticated businesses. And this is not surprising because they're not run by business people. They are run by amateurs. And I don't mean that to sound as bad as it does, but they are. But they are They are run by people who are not business people. They're not trained in this kind of thing. They're lawyers who are also playing at being business people. And it works out about as well as you might think it does at the end of the day. Yeah, that's true. There's a real disconnect. It's like, um, you know, as a lawyer and a litigator, when you see come in, someone come into the court and try and represent themselves, even though they're very intelligent, there's just some disconnect there that's just not working. There's a subtext of expertise and that is lost. And I think the lawyers fall into the same problem and not getting accountants or people with business degrees to help them out. So that being said, is there a law firm that you have seen uh, or a law firms that you you've been particularly impressed with that you thought, um, even if you don't name the, name the name, have you seen some that have really impressed you? Uh, I have from time to time seen firms that have made great strides in adjusting their system, adjusting their approach and so forth. I mean, I mentioned Patriot Law in Alberta, which is a good example, and it's a small firm too, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the other, the other end of the scale in terms of size, Allen and Overy, based in London, one of the Magic Circle firms, fascinating firm. They are one of the very rare firms that seems to get, more so than most, we're in the business of creating value for clients, helping them not just solve problems, but seize opportunities, and it's not just legal. And there's all sorts of ways in which we can do that. And so they've set, they've set up separate businesses, and they've hived off certain parts of things to do, specialist areas to do certain things well in certain locations and others. Lengthy story. You could tell, you could spend an hour talking about Alan and Overy alone. You'll occasionally find businesses in the middle. I mean, the classic example in the U.S. is Valorum Law in Chicago, uh, which has been doing fixed fee litigation work, which some people still say is impossible. They've been doing it successfully for 15, 20 years. Wow. But at the same time, it's really hard. It is so hard to make these changes in an existing law firm. I used to say it's a little bit like you're driving an 18-wheeler down the 401, and while it's going down, you're going to climb out of the cab, you're going to open up the hood, and you're going to change the engine. Right. It's like it's extremely hard to do that. And uh, and and that's why I, I keep a very close eye on all these new providers coming into the market, the managed legal services players, the technology players, the big four who are coming into this. They're bringing their own baggage into this as well, because large accounting firms have their own institutional uh, problems. But for the most part, I think it's a lot easier as, as between, I'm going to take this existing law firm with a history and a number of lawyers and an existing client base, and I'm going to rework it to become this forward-looking, really cool 21st, 22nd century business, or I'm just going to start something new. I'm just going to greenfield. 
it, I think there's so much to be said for doing the latter. I, I, I hesitate to say this publicly. People will say, well, then what's the hell's the point in trying to innovate anything in law firms? And I don't think that's the case. I think you can and should. And, and I make this point when doing retreats. I said, look, the challenges I'm laying out for you here are real and they are significant, but this is not a call for you all to abandon it all and pursue a career in horticulture or whatever. This is to say to you that you are still formidable players in this market. Your brand is very strong. Your expertise is unchallenged. Your knowledge of the market is significant. You have so many built-in advantages already. The brand and goodwill that law firms have is far beyond any individual lawyer's book of business. This is something not enough managing partners understand. When they're out there trying to poach people from other firms to come in here, or you're trying desperately desperately to keep this really difficult rainmaker from bolting to another firm. And it's like, I don't care how much business that person brings in. The monetary value is not close to the value that your brand has established in your markets over the last three decades. And you need to take advantage of that. Build the brand, build the reputation, strengthen them, rely upon that. Focus on not the people who are delivering the services, but on the service you've delivered, the experience clients go through when they get it. The fact that after they walk away, they say, I can't wait to tell other people about the law firm I just dealt with. You want to have people who are not just happy with what you've done, they're evangelical about it. <laughs> they are going out unprompted to say, you're not going to believe it, but I had an amazing experience with a freaking law firm. Let me tell you the story. Let me grab you a beer. I'll tell you all about it, right? That's what we want to be aiming for. And, and so I would like law firms to appreciate that and conduct themselves accordingly. It is, it is about the value you are delivering as an entity to the clients you've chosen in the markets you've chosen in the most effective way possible. And at the end of the day, in a lot of ways, everything else is detail. Jordan, we've covered a lot, and uh, this is it's a good sign. We've actually gone over our hour, so so you know I'm enjoying the conversation. But I, I'm going to ask you one final question uh, that I ask everyone, and that is, you know, if you had the power of either chief justice or attorney general or just, you know, a managing partner at a major Canadian law firm, what is one change that you would love to just see happen? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I've, I've got the magic wand. Yeah. What can I do with it? Uh, I'll... I'll I'll tell you what, it, okay, if there's one thing I could do, and the thing of it is, I don't think this is impossible. I don't think it needs a magic wand. I would go right back to the beginning. I would go back to law school, and it isn't even the question of what we're teaching in terms of courses and, and, and structure and specialization. It seems to me that in everything we do in the law, everything we do in any parts of society, if we, anything that's a human endeavor, we go to it with our brains and we go to it with our hearts right? We think we, we think about, we analyze, and we're logical, and we calculate, and we make all the things that's using our heads and our brains. And then you bring your heart into it, and you say, what's the impact on people, and how is the experience, and so forth. And any kind of healthy individual has that balance between the, the, the brain and the heart. In law school, it's all about the brain. It's all about the clinical. It's about the logical and the analytical. I know I sound like Super Tramp singing the logical song here, which is a very good thing, I'll tell you, by the way. But, you know, but we bury compassion. We bury the idea that you could have a connection. We were warned specifically in law school, do not form an emotional connection with your clients because bad things happen. And only in retrospect do I realize that's pathological, mm -hmm. right? There's something wrong with that. I would, if I was going to change law school in one thing, it would have nothing to do with curriculum other than the fact that I spent an entire year on negotiation, but it would be about bring the heart back into it. Bring the, the human element, the human impact. The law is there for people. This is... 
for all of these really great insights into the, mecha- the mechanisms of law. This, I think, is Richard Susskind's most profound observation. Lawyers exist to serve people. The law exists to serve people, not the other way around. So I would do things like, uh, again, Julie McFarlane, University of Windsor, and I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm crediting her, crediting her properly for this. One of the things she does in her courses, she brings self-represented litigants into the classroom to talk to lawyers, to say, this is what I went through. And this is what it was like, and this is what, this this is why I had to do it, right? And they are profoundly changed by this. When I talk to law students, I say, you know what you need to do? Go hire a lawyer. Go find a lawyer somewhere down the street. Get your will made out. God knows you need it anyway, right? Half the Canadians don't have one. Get a will made out. It's not that expensive in most cases, but re- take a journal. Make a journal of everything you went through. Trying to find someone, getting a hold of them, making an appointment. How were you? Tra- how were you treated at the front door? What did the reception say to you? How did the lawyer treat you? Did you? Were you ever looked in the eye? Etc. 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 Because it's the last time you will ever know what it feels like to be someone going through this meat grinder of a system we have built. Bring the heart back to to legal education and development. Let people realize and remember it's okay to have an emotional connection to this. If you don't have an emotional connection to what you're doing, I think you're in the wrong line of work. That would be my magic wand. Well, Jordan Furlong, thank you very much for joining me. Uh, thanks a lot for, you know, I know you had a busy day today here at Queen's and uh, heading back to Ottawa and I'll be heading back to Toronto, but I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Sean. It's been a pleasure.